Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Nelson Fletcher, Al Gordon, Travis Stork, Craig Body, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Pickett, Eugene Brickens, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferguson, Sean Hedges, Tony McIntyre, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Ekamanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Lich, Matt Smith, Michael Wilson, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Burt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Sapwell, Dusty Rokart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one, and they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed for the Premiers in 2018. Transition, the Brisbane Roar Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17 year drought is over. All hail the Kings. Sydney, the NBL 22 champions. 3 0 sweep, they win it 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 33 of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and tonight we're going to be joined by former Port Adelaide Magpies Premiership player and former Adelaide Crow and Sydney Swan, Ricky O'Loughlin. The younger brother of Sydney Swans champion, Michael O'Loughlin, Ricky O is a proud Indigenous man from Salisbury North in Adelaide who was a standout player in the SANFL, winning the ultimate glory with his beloved Magpies in 1999. He then made a childhood dream a reality when he was drafted to Adelaide the year after in 2000, where he would play nine games for the Crows, scoring two goals. His time at Adelaide was highlighted with his first game in Round 5 2000, as well as Round 12 2000, playing his one and only AFL game against his brother Michael. Being delisted after two seasons, he joined his older brother in Sydney in 2002, but unfortunately did not make a senior appearance for the club and was delisted at the conclusion of that season. Riccio is a man with great perspective and respect for the game, his teammates and coaches, and is immensely proud of playing in the big league. He discusses his relationship with his brother Michael, winning the Holy Grail with the Magpies, his three seasons in the AFL, declining an opportunity to join Fremantle and reflecting on that decision 20 years later, his strong belief in education when it comes to racism in the game, as well as sharing a locker room with the greatest forward in AFL history, Tony Lockett. So throughout his time in the AFL, he played nine senior games, he scored two goals, and as I mentioned earlier, he is an SANFL Premiership player with the Port Adelaide Magpies in 1999. And on top of that, he is a great bloke. I'm lucky enough to know him personally, and to have him on the show was absolutely fantastic. From the Adelaide Crows and the Sydney Swans, it's Ricky O'Loughlin. At ground level, 
Good strong play. Coming away with the ball, Ricky O'Loughlin. There's some big wraps on him. Another step. Handballs to O'Loughlin. Well, what a team goal. So three. The man on the mark. Goes to the goal square. Ricky O'Loughlin's there. Oh, did he touch it? On his boot. This might be a goal. Oh, he socketed that out of the air. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today we've got another very special guest on the show, former player of the Sydney Swans and the Adelaide Crows, Ricky O'Loughlin. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast here tonight. G'day Daniel, how you going? Yeah, thanks for having me mate. Anytime at all. So, Ricky O, in, in the blink of an eye, it's already been 20 years now since your final AFL season there in 2002. What have you been up to since that time and, and what are you up to now these days? <laughs> yeah, absolutely mate, when you say it like that, 20 years, wow. Oh, my after uh, life after the uh, big league, I, I went back to the uh, SNFL with the Magpies. Spent a few more years back there, and life after footy, so, so to speak, took over. Um, kids and family and everything, and uh, played a bit of country footy around Adelaide, and just employment. Mate, now working for the big brother, Mickey O. I better give him a plug. He's managing director and uh, co-owner of a uh, indigenous business called ARA Indigenous Services. Predominantly a cleaning company, commercial cleaning, but fingers in a, in a few other pies, you know, fire, mechanical, security, etc. So been with him probably in the last five years. Yeah, life's good. Uh, the company's growing now nationwide, started on the eastern seaboard. So, yeah, really enjoying that and just probably... I guess, in that next phase of life, winding down for life after footy. Fantastic. Congratulations on everything you've done since finishing up playing in the big league. And we'll definitely touch on your brother a little bit later on. But just taking you back to your roots, you are, of course, a proud Indigenous man, originally from Salisbury, South Australia. I'm very, very eager to hear a little bit about your Indigenous heritage, as well as some of the other parts of of your history, I suppose, because I do understand you've got a little bit of Irish and Czech in you as well. Yeah, mate, absolutely. Bit of a mix there. Um, yeah, like you said, Salisbury North, uh, born and bred, and um, started the uh, footy trade uh, at the Salisbury North Football Club. Still there to this day, just having a kick in the seniors there, but just in the C grade, mate, kicking a catch. Like you said, uh, proud Indigenous man, really proud of my heritage, my culture, the Irish side of it, hence, you know, the name O'Loughlin is from my grandfather's side, and and the Czech side comes in from Dad's dad, my, so my paternal grandfather, sorry. So it's a bit of a crazy mix, but great family, great upbringing, and um, wouldn't have it any other way, mate. And in terms of your family life, you have four siblings, including, of course, Michael. Your mother, Muriel, is one person I'd love to ask you about. So from what I've read in, in Michael's biography, doing a bit of prep for this interview, she seems a very strong, hardworking, family-oriented woman who made a big impact on all your lives. Can you speak a little bit about your mother and how she helped you particularly in your football career? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, mate, yes, very strong woman, uh, very strong-willed, you know, always made sure that education was first and foremost. Mum, still to this day, she works for the education department, has been there for uh, 29 years now. So I think she said she's going to retire next year after her 30th year. So, yeah, like I said, education was first and foremost and can't leave Dad out either. Dad was a big disciplinarian. You know, we weren't allowed to go and play marks up with the mates or go and kick the footy or whatever unless um, homework was done, chores around the house, etc. So, but yeah, mum, mum was really the glue. Dad um, worked away a lot. 
So yeah, you know, can't couldn't ask for a better mother, and she she's onto the next phase of her life with grandchildren and everything, etc. Just a beautiful lady, and um, we're probably getting to footy and everything um, on a Sunday as as juniors. Mum made the uh, most of you know what we had, and really made sure that we had every opportunity we we could to to do the best we could. And you know, obviously, having played in the big league, that. That obviously worked. So could could never ever ever thank uh, Mum enough for for what she's done, for what she sacrificed for us, for her kids. So, growing up here in Adelaide's North, you you first began playing at a young age for Salisbury North, and and as you said, you're still there today. Along with the family life, what are your memories of growing up in Salisbury, and when was it that your love of football started? Oh yeah, mate. Because uh, football was has been always has been a, a massive part of our of our family you know um, from my grandmother's youngest brother my great uncle is Wilbur Wilson a central districts legend I guess so he's one of them dad was a, a great footballer himself so strong bloodlines I guess and growing up in Swansea North and it still does to this day. Back then it had uh, a massive Aboriginal community. I remember being able to walk two streets away and, and there would be uncle's house. And then another two streets away was another uncle and auntie's house. And uh, then, you know, so it was never too far to, to travel, to get on the bike or the skateboard and go and see your cousins and, uh, and your mate. Our mates all grew up within probably a 500 kilometre radius of each other and um, so it was so so easy and accessible to go and get together with your mates and play basketball, play football, do whatever boys do at that age and that really helped drive our um, competitive spirits I guess and uh, always competing against each other uh, so really great place to grow up bit rough back in the day but that, that also helped with <laughs> other sides of, the, of growing up but and like I said, I'm, I'm still in the area now and just love it. You know, the kids attend the local primary school and high schools that I did um, as, a, as a youngster. So it's home, mate. Salisbury North is home. Absolutely. And again, I've read as a kid, you and Michael particularly would play against one another in the backyard as, as kids. And I understand your father did play football too, as well as your uncle Wilbur Wilson, who you mentioned was, was a wonderful player in the SANFL. Was playing at a professional level always a goal for you growing up? Oh, absolutely. I, I think so. When you're growing up in a family like ours with, you know, all our siblings, cousins, um, and then extended family, football, it was always football, football, football. And like I said, you know, you, you, you learn that competitive drive, that spirit, and then you want to be the best you can be, you know. Uh, and so it was all a dream. All, uh, sorry, always a dream to, to play uh, league footy, AFL football, and um, when you get to uh, those teenage years, 14, 15, 16, and then you start to attract a bit of notice and that sort of thing, and it helped me uh, with the big brother being drafted first, and yeah, you know, luck plays a little bit, but nothing will beat talent and hard work mostly, so yeah, it was, was probably almost uh, a foregone conclusion. that you, you just learn to be the best you can be and okay we'll put my skills to the test and see if what it takes to to, to put that in, in, into the trade and play AFL so so as you're coming through the ranks as a teenager and and you're coming towards the SNFL when was it I suppose you realized you were possibly good enough to actually make the elite level 
I guess that for me personally, I think with Michael, it was a different story. He was he was always going to be very, very good. He was always, and it was just shown from a young age. It was about that time, Michael was about 17. He's a couple of years older than me. So I reckon I was about 15. And at that time, I was doing a bit of boxing and was playing, playing basketball, had played some state basketball, junior footy and cricket, a lot of things. Uh, and Dad, I remember Dad saying to me, you know, look, Nick's been drafted. Um, it's time for you to choose one of these sports and stick to it. So, um, yeah, about 16 years of age, I was out training one night at Salisbury North Footy Club for the under-17s and um, a guy by the name of Johnny Hall who's still a local legend to me and to a lot of guys. I think he's still he's still doing some junior recruiting for the Central Districts Footy Club. But at that time, he was recruiting for Port Adelaide, the Magpies. He came out, coach pulled us, uh, myself and a couple of others aside and said, look, this gentleman here is interested in getting you guys out to the Magpies and try out and possibly see what you can do. So there were four of us and I was the one lucky enough that uh, because we everything is worked by uh, works by zones, I was zoned to central districts um, because of where we live. But I thought, why not give it a go? And I wanted to go to the Magpies and, and try out. And out of the four of us, uh, I was the one selected. And I'm not too exactly too sure how it worked, but I know Port Adelaide had to pay Central Districts some sort of transfer fee, which was quite a bit of money back in the day, and to pretty much uh, have my services, I guess. And it worked out, you know, so I had a reasonably successful career with the, uh, with the Magpies. And what was it like being at Port Adelaide? Obviously a very, very proud club, rich history, long history. What was it like being a part of Port Adelaide? Oh, absolutely, mate. You hit the nail on the head, you know, with Club Steep, such a rich history. It was amazing because I first went to Alberton Oval when I was probably about 10 years old with my dad, Uncle Wilbur. Uh, he, he'd not long been retired from, uh, from Central. Uh, I remember it clearly. It was Central Districts versus Port Adelaide at uh, Alberton Oval and, you know, went along, uh, watched the game. So to actually get there and, okay, now the hard work begins uh, and knowing the club, the history, the everybody hears about that, but then actually being a player and that you get the, as a young follower, you get to train with those senior guys and being a part of that era of Port Adelaide Football Club through the 90s, if not the, one of the top two most successful eras in the club's history. So guys like Timmy Ginever, especially, one night the youngsters trained with the seniors and he just pulled me aside and he said, young Ricky O, you coming with me? And, you know, we had to train alongside the seniors and just to watch what they go through, how they go about it, what they do, you know, in order to ensure that they get the best out of themselves so they can put that on the park every Saturday. It was just another level, something that I hadn't experienced. So, you know, that's where I learned my trade. And, you know, you've all, I think most kids at that age do have a competitive spirit, but there's another level that they go to, you know, that these guys go to. And if you were lucky enough to be one of those kids to learn from those guys, Timmy Ginever, Paul Northeast, Daisy Borlace, Daryl Borlace, Rowan Smith, George Fiacci, they're, they're all Port Adelaide legend. So that was a big eye-opener, but something that I based my football 
abilities and knowledge off of still to this day, just from things I, I learned from those guys. So I couldn't have asked for anything more, mate, and I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped to have ever been a part of it. Yeah, that's a fantastic insight and a great answer. Another thing, obviously, I wanted to talk to you about was the 1999 Premiership. You are an SANFL Premiership player. You, you Port Adelaide that year win the minor Premiership 15-5 record and they play Norwood in the grand final. Kicked a goal in that game as well. I'm sure that is one memory yeah. that sticks out in your career, being part of that Premiership side and, and you know your name is scripted forever in SANFL history as a Premiership player. What are your memories of the day? Yeah. And can you describe to the listeners the feeling of winning that ultimate prize in football? As the siren starts, the 1999 SA NFL Grand Final. Umpire thumps the ball into the centre circle. Up goes Yerbury. Over the top was Chalmers with the first touch of the afternoon. Portolo fans sense it. I think at the 27-minute mark of the final term, I think they reckon they're home, and I think they might be right. There's only minutes left, and Port Adelaide will go on to take their 36th flag, if you don't mind. What an imposing record that is. Hobbs and Draganza, plenty of pushing and shoving as we hear the final siren, the 1999 Grand Final, the Magpies, they've won it by eight points. Well, Tim, you can bask in the moment. That was an unbelievable game of football played by two competitive sides. And in the finish, Port Adelaide just got home. Well, in the last 20 years, we saw 1980, Port Adelaide just get up. 1984, Norwood come from fifth, win by nine points. 97, Norwood too good. Massive winners. Today, eight-point victors, Port Adelaide. Oh, mate, I still have very vivid and fond memories of that day. It's something you can't really describe, like two years beforehand, playing in front of crowds of a couple of hundred people, even... I think I played 13 games that season, my debut season, and you get a couple of thousand people. It just hadn't been the same uh, since Port Power had entered the league. The crowds had dwindled a little. But I remember that year playing Norwood in a Friday night game at the parade, and there were probably about 10,000, 12,000 people there, and it was absolutely amazing. But then to take it all the way through to the grand final, and, and lucky enough to be selected because... I was a young guy, 19, 20 years old, I think, and the only other guy around my age was Paul Evans. And everybody else had played hundreds hundreds or 50 games, and there we were, young fellas. And um, my dad, I, remember, I always remember what my dad said to me. He said, get out before the game as often as you can, walk around and soak up the crowd and so you're not daunted by it when you finally get out there and you're ready to play which I did, and I, I think it worked. I'm pretty sure it worked. So, you know, I got out there. It was just crazy. Then walking out there, and there's 40,000 people. And <laughs> a young kid from Salisbury North and um, playing in front of 40,000 people at Footy Park, absolutely amazing. I'm glad I took my dad's advice because when I did walk, walk out before the game had, had began, just to soak it up, I was awestruck just by the amount of people there and thinking to myself, well, I'm going to be playing in front of this crowd very shortly. So, great game. I still can't forget Phil McGuinness's goal uh, late in the fourth quarter. Pretty much seals it for us. The elation of, of winning, knowing what you've busted your butt for, you know, the whole season, having your family there. I had my mum, my dad, my nana, my grandpa. Big brother Michael was across for it. So, yeah, mate, it's something I'll never forget. It was absolutely amazing. 
All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break for three-quarter time here on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. We also cater for meal deals including bacon and egg rolls, hamburgers and hot dogs upon request. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, book with Cappuccinos by visiting our website at www.cappuccinos.com spelled C-U-P-P-A-G-I-N-O-S, link in the description below, or contact us directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. Winning an SANFL title, I think you said you were 19, 20 at the time. Do you ever think potentially gives you the preconceived idea that you're naturally just bound to automatically spring into the AFL? Oh, not at all. Because, you know, it was great because having the big brother already been in there in the system at that time and for about four or five years. Yeah, it wasn't so much just expecting it to happen. And obviously with the family that I grew up with, with dad and uncles, it was always drummed in your head, you know, never to expect anything. It's never just going to happen. You have to lay the groundwork. So, you know, laying a good foundation coming up. Pre-99, played in the 98 Reserves Grand Final and some finals football with the Port Adelaide Juniors and... I think if you you know you do you lay your foundation right, then it's not so much about cockiness or anything like that. You're, you're just confident in your abilities, and also the fact that those Magpies teams were so tight knit. They you know you could go to war with those guys. You could rely on them, and you know that they are going to you know have your back 100% of the way. So I knew there was still some hard work to do. Um, I mean, guys were getting drafted at. 17 years old and here I am at 19, 20, you know, it probably crossed my mind that I, you know, might not make it at all. I mean, like that 99 grand final side, what a lot of people don't know is that a guy that missed out was a guy by the name of Aaron Fiora. Aaron made his debut that year also and also Alan Didak. And these guys went on to have very successful AFL careers. One with Collingwood and Aaron Fiora with St Kilda Saint and Kilda, Richmond. Yeah. So, so I was I was very lucky, but I knew that I'd done the hard work and I, I deserved my spot. Well, the next season you you did make it onto the to the Crows list. So you were taking it, or you were a fourth round draft pick, when you become an Adelaide yep. Crow. Had you been in conversation with the Crows at the time, and did you think you were a chance of getting drafted, or were you more just we'll see what happens? A bit of both. Like, I, I knew I'd laid a good foundation. I'd done the hard work. Obviously, playing in that premiership helped. And I think, because I, I couldn't celebrate as much as I would have loved to. One, being a young kid, but then, 
two days up after playing in that grand final, I had to be on a plane to go to Canberra for the to the AIS for the draft camp. If you're being invited to the draft camp, then you've obviously attracted some attention. And I had some chats with uh, with a whole whole number of different clubs, but I didn't have any idea that even though I'd spoken to Adelaide also, I didn't have any idea who was going to pick me. So I was just elated, just glad to be to be given an opportunity to to try my luck at the at the big league. So, what are your memories of getting drafted, and and what was that emotion like for you and also your family when you officially made it onto an AFL list? Mate, it was excitement for every kid because I think it's something ridiculous like 10,000 kids nominate for the AFL draft every year and I think it's about 100 at most that actually do get drafted so to be the top 100 of those 10,000 kids at that particular time was it's a massive pat on the back I guess and yeah you know I just remember getting my name called out I was watching, sitting at home with mum and dad watching it on the telly and uh, then, then they call and say, you know, congratulations, see you Monday, and um, getting a call from the big brother. So it all happens so quickly, and then all of a sudden you're into it, and you're meeting guys that you were watching on the telly just a couple of months ago. So, yeah, really, really big shock, but a welcomed one nonetheless. And walking into the club at that time, the club obviously wasn't as strong as they were back in the premiership years of the late 90s, but they still had... Some all-time great players, Andrew McLeod, Mark Rusciuto, Ben Hart, Darren Jarman, could easily mention several others, but was that at all intimidating or more so exciting to be around those sort of guys? Bit of both, mate, because like I said, you know, you're watching these guys on telly and now to be a part of that group, to have earned your way there, but you still have to earn your respect by doing everything that you've done to get there. You have to do it all over again, but twice as good pretty much in a nutshell. It was a little bit of a shock because ever since I was a young follower, I'd always been a big Darren Jarman fan, you know, from his Hawthorne days and then his Crows days. So meeting DJ for the first time was, uh, I was, I was like a kid in a candy shop, but, um, <laughs> you know, you learn, to, <laughs> you learn to suppress those feelings and just, okay, you have to learn that you're a part of that group now and they're not looking at you like a fan anymore. They're looking at you like as a teammate and uh, as someone who there to, to help find success for, for the footy club. At the time, Gary Ayres was the coach. I've heard a few divided opinions. As a younger player, I'd love to hear your take on, on Gary Ayres and the relationship that you had with him in your, in your two years you had there at Adelaide. Well, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst either. You know, he, he was there to do a job and every coach has their own different philosophies and, and, and game plans. So I guess for the club, obviously, in retrospect now, it, it didn't work out to how they wanted to. But, but I think uh, as he's gone on to coach in the VFL with Port Melbourne and be quite successful. So the coaching group consisting of Neil Craig and Mark Micken, Peter Curran, Daryl Hart. The pedigree is there, so at the same time, you can have the greatest coaches in the world, but it's all about the cattle you have on the park too, and for whatever reasons, it just didn't work out, and nor did my time there. But we'll be forever grateful to the Adelaide Footy Club for, uh, for giving me the opportunity. Can never forget that. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated and I hope this episode is finding you well. 
If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Round 5, 2000 is when you make your AFL debut. So against Brisbane at the Gabba. Yeah. yeah of course, the, the, the Lions were just about to start their dynasty and you actually made your debut the same game as Jonathan Brown, which is a bit of a fun fact. What are your, yeah. what are your memories of, of your first game? Getting belted, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was. I left that out on purpose, but yeah. Yeah, no, it was. It, it was a. I, I recall not getting too much game time, but like you mentioned, Brisbane were a powerhouse at the beginning of their dynasty. So, and especially that crowd up there at the Gabba. Um, you know, at that time, Brisbane were unbeatable. But I, I hold, uh, you know, fond memories of that place forever because it was the place uh, I made my debut. And it was just, unfortunately for me, it, it's one of those things. You're playing against a, a powerhouse side like Brisbane and there's not much that you can do. I like to think I, you know, made square next time we played them at Footy Park. So, but yeah, we'll, we'll never forget it though, mate. It was, a, it was a great experience, even though we got our behinds handed to us. Do you remember back then the difference in standard between AFL and SANFL? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. Semi-professionalism in the SANFL. You're still training a few nights a week, and obviously, not that the money really has anything to do with it. Well, it's never had anything to do with it for me. It's never been about money. But it's just the professionalism, the, the input and output in terms of, you know, your training regime, your Everything just becomes a lot more professional. Your, your, your recovery, your diet, your nutrition, everything just comes into play. And like yeah, like I said, a lot more professional um, and they put a lot more time into it. The AFL clubs have a bucket load of staff to help X amount of more trainers, physio, everything. So in order to get the best out of each and every player, so which then obviously extends onto the field and the guys are a lot fitter, uh, a lot bigger, a lot stronger. The pace of it is just so crazy. In the SNFL, you know, back in that day, it was, it was so good. It was so quick, but AFL football was just double that. They say... An AFL final, uh, sorry, an SANFL final was equivalent to just a regular season AFL, which is probably true from what I found. So, yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, one game I also do want to touch on is round twelve against Sydney. It was the one and only game you played against your older brother Michael. Fifty point win. You had eleven disposals and, and you kicked a goal. It was statistically was the best game of your AFL career and you beat your brother. So you are and always will have that on Mickey O. The ledger will forever say one nil your way. <laughs> I'm sure that's one memory you and your family will cherish forever. Well, it's not a packed house tonight, but I suppose you could understand that because if we're expecting five degrees minimum during the game, uh, it is a big ask to come out of the football. Hope you're enjoying it at home. It won't lessen the importance of this game for both teams. It's a must-win for both teams, and the, the winner, you'd suggest, still has a crack at the final if the loser is almost history. Well, the first win has gone to the Adelaide Crows. They've won the toss, and they'll go with this breeze, so it's a big breeze right to left. Yes, Matthew Nix was the acting captain for the Swans, and he lost the toss. And umpire Michael Bozzo 
is about to get us underway. The breeze is right to left and the Crows have it in the first turn. Goodwin carries the ball to centre wing. Waking kick oh, by nice. O'Loughlin. Well, it was a kick into space and Ricky O'Loughlin beautifully dropped back into that space. It didn't appear to be the uh, dominant lead from the forward line. Simon Goodwin watching his beautiful left foot dispose of Ricky O'Loughlin just dropping back. Now, whether it was meant for him, we're not sure. But he got where it was. Well, yet to kick a goal. Third game of AFL football. Could this be the first of many? He's drilled it. Siren goes as John Stevens goes for the last score of the night and there's a consolation prize late it won't matter the Swans have won just one of their last nine games and the Crows revival continues and there's that man Andrew McLeod played such a good game Simon Goodwin's performance on Michael O'Loughlin was instrumental uh, after a very very good uh, first quarter and in even first quarter we would say Adelaide uh, just too good Peter Barty there and uh, gives Ricky O'Loughlin a, a handshake and we thought Ricky O'Loughlin was tremendous in the first quarter. Absolutely mate and you know what I'm not going to lie I still remind him about that to this day. So <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> no it, it, was, it was great. It was a massive massive shock. I'd grown up being a Swans fan even before Michael was drafted there. Because so he, he, he was a, a mad Carlton player. supporter wasn't he? Yeah he wanted to play for Carlton. Yeah, and I wanted to play for the Swans. So when he initially was first drafted, I packed my bags too. I thought I was going with him. So, <laughs> <laughs> But great night, great memory playing against him. Uh, it was so awesome to see him on the field as a player, as opposed to watching it on the telly. You know, and it's a whole lot more personal because he's my big brother. So just seeing him, how he went about his business on the field, um, you know, showcasing his skill, his leadership, it was a fantastic night. The, the whole family was there, you know, all the O'Loughlin clan, plus, you know, every everyone. There was probably a group of 30 or 40 of us right in the middle being mum and dad and nan and pop. So, and like you said, you know, we, we got the chockies that night in a good win. I was just so rapt to be a part of it and got a nice pick in a frame at home here of Mick and I after, after the game, you know, the final siren and... Um, so it's one I'll treasure, you know, forever. And, um, yeah, like I said, a, a great memory that I'll never forget, mate. Would you say that's your favourite moment of your career? That moment, playing against my big brother, is on par with my Magpies 99 Premiership. Those two moments, for me, are the pinnacle. They're just moments that I will never, ever forget. Obviously, firstly, being given the opportunity to play AFL, but in amongst all of that, those actual moments that I pinpoint as my favourite anyway. So you played seven games in, in 2000. In 2001, you only managed the two games for the Crows early in the season and, and you went to Sydney the next year, but you, you never played AFL again. Why was it that you, you weren't really given an opportunity to play regular senior football at Adelaide? Do you think there's anything more you could have done? I'm not so sure, mate. Like I, I know that I, I don't have any regret. I know that I did everything within my abilities to get the best out of myself, to be picked for senior selection. So, I don't know. I've thought about it in the past, but not so much over the last 10, 15 years or so. It's just one of those things, possibly horses for courses, I guess. You know, maybe it just wasn't a right fit for me. But 
like I said, I, I don't have any regrets about could I have done anything better because truth be told, in, in my mind, in my opinion, I, I did, did everything I could in order to be selected. So, yeah, just one of those things, I guess, mate. What would your advice be to younger players who may, may be on an AFL list that are drowned out, per se, by experienced players and have so much talent and ability, as you did, but they just aren't getting that opportunity? How, how could they grind through that period and forge their career forward? Yeah, it's just a matter of keeping at it, just keeping at it. I, I couldn't stress enough the importance of being disciplined, being punctual. You know, even now, still to this day, I'm, I'm still a student of the game. So, you know, just never stop listening, never stop learning. You know, I guess after I left Adelaide and went to Sydney, I went over there off my own back and because I was delisted from Adelaide and I thought, well, I'll ring the big brother, see if there might be an opportunity opportunity for me to join Sydney. He spoke with Rocket, he'd heard the coach at the time, and uh, Rocket said, yep, you know, more than welcome. And then after pre-season, it came down to one spot left on the senior list. And Rodney, Ede, I had a meeting with uh, him and the big brother, with Mick, and Rocket Ede put it bluntly and said, mate, there's one spot left on the senior list. I don't know what to do. I know what I've got, what I'm going to do, but I want you here at Sydney because the one spot left is between you and Tony Lockett. <laughs> Plugger had decided to come out of retirement, so Rocket Ede asked me, you know, um, would you, would you consider going on the rookie list? So after sport, yeah, I stayed. And it was a, it was a great move because I, I played in the VFL at the time. Sydney Swans feeder club was Port Melbourne in the VFL. We had a, had a great year, made the grand final, but unfortunately went down to Geelong in the, in the grand final. But had a great season. But then, unfortunately, was delisted again. Sydney had uh, ended up parting ways with uh, Rocket E midway through the year. Paul Ruse came on board as coach. Plugger retired before the season finished and I was elevated to the senior list, but unfortunately didn't get um, any game time. So just stuck to my guns. And I think, you know, then being delisted from there, I was offered a trade to Fremantle, but I declined. I was just a little disappointed with uh, being delisted again. So I decided to come back and uh, resume my uh, football with uh, Port Adelaide. Wow, so you actually could have been a Fremantle player the next year. Yeah, but yeah, like I said, mate, I was just a bit disheartened and thought, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this, but I know I'll, um, I'll always be welcome back at, back at Alberton, so yeah. Have you ever thought what could have been if I went to Fremantle? Yeah, of course, absolutely. But like I said, no regrets. If I had of, uh, my life would probably be very different right now. It's just one of those decisions. Like I said, I don't have any regrets. I don't regret not going. Yeah, it's all all I can now do now is speculate what might have been, but but I, I'd choose not to do that. I'm I'm happy with with that decision. What's become of? Yeah, I was never aware that you could have been a Fremantle player. So throughout the three years you spent in the AFL system, two years with the Crows, one with Sydney, it produced just the nine games. You were you were such a talent, and especially the SNFL, you had enormous ability and potential. Are you disappointed that you never got? an opportunity to really show what you could do at AFL level? Yeah, of course. I, I guess so, you know, because I, I felt, like I said, I felt that I'd done more than enough to put my name in the in the mix. At Adelaide, I was the travelling emergency on a um, handful of occasions. So there were some weeks missing out, not playing for Adelaide or 
back in the SNFL with Port Adelaide either. So, but yeah, I felt that um, I could have, I guess, prospered maybe at another club. But like I said, I made that decision to come home and, and be back home with my family and, and, and resume with, with Port Adelaide. Just lastly on the season at Sydney, you've got to play with your, or share a locker room with your brother Michael. You got to share a locker room with Adam Goods, Barry Hall and, of course, Tony Locker. I'd love to hear yeah. what it was like to share a locker room with those sort of guys for a season and the relationships that you had with, with some of those guys. Yeah, oh, it was absolutely amazing. And at that time, Sydney were a lot more professional than my time at Adelaide. And it was just how they went about their business. I think, you know, just on a personal note, seeing the big brother day in, day out, watching him, how he went about, uh, you know, how he approached his his football career, game day, training days, even the, those off nights at home, you know, just sitting back, doing extra work or rehab or anything like that. So it was a really, really profound time. I was number 41 at the Swans and Tony Lockett come out of retirement. Benny Matthews had had number four. And he didn't want to give it up, and that was fine by Plugger, and he 46. took number 46, yeah. correct. So all the rookies were all allocated those lockers, 41 to 45. And most training days, Plugger, I don't know why, but Plugger would tell the uh, other young guys to scooch along, and he'd come sit down next to me, and he'd just, you know, he'd love to have a chat. And so that was amazing, because Tony Lockett is Tony Lockett. He was amazing in his approach. Private guy, but at training, he was—he loved to have a bit of a bit of a joke. And goal kicking practice was one of the one of my favourite times because I picked up some good tips from you know from, from the greatest, I guess. So he really helped in uh, in helping me with my set shot practice and all that sort of thing, just goal kicking in general. And uh, so it was a really valuable moment and another thing that uh, I'll never forget. Yeah, because I was actually watching Yokai footy the other day and Michael was on there. Michael said that the best player he ever played with was Tony Lockett. Yeah. And you you were with him for that one season where he only played the three games. Yeah. And obviously, he was, he, he was certainly past his prime by then. But what sort of a presence does he have in the locker room? And I know he's a, a private sort of a guy, but what was it like just to be around him? And the greatest goal kicker in AFL history is looking now to the serious business of playing at the top level again after a successful return at a weekend practice match. Tony Lockett was back kicking goals for the Sydney Swans in a game against Essendon and now has his sights on once again writing his name in the history books. It's the sight Sydney fans haven't seen for more than two years. Tony Lockett mean and keen to make a successful comeback. Lockett's return drew more than 12,000 to North Sydney Oval and although he played just two quarters for Sydney in the 15-a-side practice match against Essendon, he left a lasting impression. I had that many full backs in the AFL. They had a party the year he retired. He's just taken take them as an all, all... They're all suckers. He's had a bit of a rest and he's back. While his scoring statistics weren't critical, two goals and three behinds, his presence looms for the good of the game. We just keep moving around, just keep mixing up and you know, just try and keep the opposition guessing a bit. You know, it's been a good step forward today. Further advance than the Swans expected, but Sydney fans don't have a guaranteed season ticket for Pluggermania until he plays three more games. It's just a matter of uh, getting out there and uh, being involved and just seeing what happens. Linking with ex St Kilda forward Barry Hall gave Sydney fresh options. Didn't really know what to expect, but um, there wasn't no real plan yesterday. We just sort of 
played by ear and, and see how it went and it, it worked out pretty well. Lockett will be out to prove it can be a game for a veteran, a month short of his 36th birthday. I think you got to be really something special to probably last after 30, let alone 36. Oh yeah, it was amazing mate, like I said, Tony Lockett, he's the greatest, so everybody uh, especially the younger guys, myself included, initially, didn't know how to approach him. If we had a question to ask, like, we'd be like, kids, you know, oh, you go ask. Oh, no, no I'm not going, you go ask him. <laughs> you know? And those sorts of things. But he was very, very approachable. And, you know, like I said, he, he loved a little bit of a joke and he, he never took anything too seriously. He just just a massive present. And I think the, the one thing, like, obviously, watching Tony Lockett play, especially his St Kilda days and then his early days in Sydney, everybody knew who Tony Lockett was, but then to get to know him on a personal level, and I think the biggest wake-up for me was Plugger had come out of retirement, uh, sorry, come back from injury during the course of that season, and he had to play a game for Port Melbourne, down in Melbourne, in the VFL, and every other game, there was probably a 1,000 people, 1,500 people at each game. And this day, we run out of the locker rooms at Borough Park there, Port Melbourne Oval, and um, we run out of the change rooms through the race out on the Oval, and there's bloody a TV camera right there. And um, it was just like, wow, what the hell? There's four or 5,000 people there, and because of him, he attracted all of that. And it was just amazing to play alongside him. One game, I got that opportunity, and again, another thing I'll never forget. Yeah, there's only one Tony Lockett, as they say. Yeah, that's it, mate. (laughs) So when your AFL career was over at the end of the 2002 season, you said you went back to the Magpies. Were you the type that there's more to life than football? Or did you ever go through a bit of an internal struggle when your AFL career ended? Initially, yeah, because that disappointment, being delisted twice. So I was disheartened. And at that time, Matthew Knight, former Richmond star, he'd come across and he was uh, on the committee coaching staff at Port Adelaide. So I was actually still in Sydney at the time, just winding down my all my stuff there. And he called me and asked me about uh, coming back to the Magpies. And I said, yes, in a heartbeat. I said, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm a Magpie through and through. So give me a few weeks to, to sort my affairs here. And uh, when I get back to Adelaide, we can, we can meet and chat and talk about all those nitty-gritty things but in my mind it was never a um, never a, a, a second guess I was always going to come back to the Magpies even though some interest from other SNFL clubs but um, I'm a loyal type of bloke and wanted to stay with the Magpies. Before we get into the final stretch of this episode we need to take one more break here for three-quarter time on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. 
Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favour and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. I'd just love to touch on your brother, Michael. So, of course, one of the greatest Indigenous players to ever play the game. 300 games, 500 goals, Indigenous team of the century. He's a Hall of Famer. Post-football, he's doing magnificent things with Adam Goods in the Indigenous space. I'd love to ask you about the 2005 AFL Grand Final when Michael plays in that Swans win over West Coast. What are your memories of that day? Were you at the game? And what did that moment mean to you and your family to see your brother become an AFL Premiership player? And we're away in the grand final of 2005. West Coast versus Sydney. Buchanan with pinpoint accuracy. Now that is a marvellous setup. A sizzling pass to O'Loughlin. Michael O'Loughlin, 35 metres out. 45 degree angle. This afternoon he's got 51 goals for the season. Again he stabs at the ball but that's good enough. Swans get their fourth. Heads along the boundary line. Oh, good mark by Cox. Cox throws it onto the left. One last roll of the dice for the Eagles! Leo Barry, you star! Bob Murray reincarnated. The longest premiership drought in football history is over. For the first time in 72 years, the Swans are champions of the AFL. Mate, yeah, still still remember it. Like I said uh, earlier, um, I personally, I, I've been a Swans fan for a long time, even before the big brother was drafted there. So I, I, I wasn't at the game at that time. I still had finals football with the Magpies back here in the SNFL. So I couldn't go, but mum, my younger brothers and a couple of others, you know, family members had gone along to go to the game. But dad and myself and a few other family members, we sat back at home and watched it on the telly and a bit of a barbie and, and uh, yeah, watching the game. And it was just, it, w- it was amazing. As everybody knows who's watched that game and uh, it was an amazing game. Keeps you on the edge of your on the, on the edge of your seat, nail biting stuff. I just remember, yeah, we, we were we were so ecstatic for the Swans, for Michael personally, knowing he'd been in the system ten years. He got to play in a grand final in '96, the Swans versus North Melbourne, but unfortunately they went down. So to you know, for him to get another crack at it. It was an elation and we were ecstatic for him and, and you know, to come home with, with the win. And like you mentioned, mate, uh, the way you say it, an AFL premiership player, you know, it's every young kid's dream. So, well, every young football fan's dream anyway. So for the whole family, you know, pride and um, all those things, sort of those feelings that come along with that, mate, and satisfaction. It's just, yeah, it was bone-chilling stuff. And, you know, we're still proud of it to this day. And, um 
still big Swans fans to this day. So, and him being involved with the club still, as I'm sure you know, you may know, he's he's on the board uh, of the Swans. So he loves the club, and uh, he's got his young son coming up. I think he might be in the Swans Academy. Young James. Hopefully, James gets a crack in uh, in a few years' time. So he's only about or oh, 14, 15, I think. So, yeah. And one thing that you did mention earlier, and and Michael listened to a lot of interviews with him and he's so proud to be a Swans person and he talks about being proud of the history of the club. You mentioned that the Sydney did things a lot more professionally than Adelaide. May I ask what you mean by that? I think just in terms of their approach and I mean Adelaide were and still are a very professional organisation. It was just different in the way, just little things like weight training, Sydney employed, I'm sure you know, the great Johnny Lewis, boxing coach. And Johnny would take us for boxing training every Thursday. or Just little things like that that just for further improvement. I suppose Sydney, where, being where they are, they get to, they have the luxury of tapping into, you know, other codes. Like I remember being at Swan's headquarters at the SCG and walking into the weights room one time and there's the Australian Wallaby, Sterling Mortlock. And, That's pretty cool. Uh, and, yeah, those sorts of things. And they tap into the NRL, you know. I remember doing, on the SCG, doing tackling practice with Sydney Roosters applying you know other techniques from different codes and seeing what works and so yeah just just those little things and like i said adelaide was and still are a a very professional organization it's just other little things that and 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 their their application i guess and i suppose that it's got a lot more to do with facilities and 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 the like and just having the the opportunity to utilize those facilities really helps and I, i guess that's what i mean by you know just a little bit more professionalism so yeah, very interesting. Ricky, I'd love to hear your take on the Indigenous space within the AFL world at the moment. So, of course, there's a lot of talk about inclusiveness and a strong stand against racism, but unfortunately, from time to time, it still does tend to poke its ugly head into our game. What would your take be on yeah. what we need to do to improve in this space and what could the AFL be doing to help young Indigenous kids, particularly who come from maybe remote communities, making their way into the AFL world to help them feel safe and accepted what do you think we we need to do look i think it all just comes back to to education and being open-minded about it like you mentioned young kids coming from remote communities it's happened in the past with guys like liam jarrah amos frank young irving mosquito of recent years so it's just about education what can they do i think the afl does a lot obviously they can do more but what does that entail exactly? I don't know. But firstly, first and foremost, I think it just it just, it just comes from education, you know, especially when it comes to racism. Constantly being on the ball, racism is just like equal opportunities when it comes to, to gender, sexism and all that sort of thing. It's just you have to constantly be on the ball and be be brave enough to, to call it out. Be brave enough to be the one that says, hey, guys, to an individual, that's not good enough. We don't condone that. We don't want that. Let's get you educated about what that actually does to someone, to the person you're inferring that those comments or uh, whatever it may be. I believe it comes back to just constantly being uh, educated about what it does, how it affects us, what it can, the ramifications of it. It's tough. So I I don't think we're going to get it right anytime soon. 
the, the the right steps are in place for the time being, and then, you know we're, we're making headway, but it may be a longer road than we anticipate. Yeah, and I ask that question because that's one thing I really admire about a lot of Indigenous people is how family-oriented you are and how close you all are and the respect you have for one another. I'll never understand, because I'm, I'm a non-Indigenous person, what does it mean to be an Indigenous Australian and, and the pride that comes with that? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Like you said, because we are a minority, not only in the, in the AFL system, but in the country itself. We're the oldest living civilization on Earth, the Aboriginal race, but yeah, we're still a minority. You know, for a culture that survived 60,000 years to almost being decimated 200 odd years ago, we have survived. You know, we're not going anywhere. And it's not about black and white, like whatever color you are, like we deserve this or we deserve that. We're just trying to be noticed. Football is something we love. You ask any indigenous footballer that one of the last things they ever speak about when it comes to why do you play football, it's never about the money. Money helps, yeah, of course, because you have to pay your way in this world, but it's never about the money. You get to look after your family, buy a nice house, buy a nice car, whatever, yeah, but that, that's not what it's about. It's the football, it's the game itself that we love. And the Aboriginal people, we do have a bit of a knack for it, a bit of a flair for, for this beautiful game of ours. And it's just the, an opportunity, a platform for, for us to, to showcase those skills. And like everybody else, I guess, but because we have such big families, we've got a lot of uncles and aunties and all the cousins and everything like that. And it's just an opportunity because for the Aboriginal guys, it's about, I say showcasing, but it's presenting yourself to the world. This is who I am. I'm so-and-so. I love playing football. And it's just showing yourself who you are out there on the field in another way. Being from big families, small communities, whatever, it's guys. Guys are shy, don't like all the all the fanfare, all the spotlight, the the interviews and everything. But that's the way we get represent ourselves, our people, our personalities out there on the football field. So, I know that's what football means to a lot of the indigenous footballers, mate. So, does it give you a sense of pride, particularly on Indigenous round, and see the celebrations and showing our appreciation for the indigenous talent in our game? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little. It's a sense of recognition also for the contributions that those guys, trailblazers, for the contributions that those guys have given to the football public, and I guess in in one sense the the wider Australian community, the wider audience gets to see these guys showcasing their talents week in week out, and that's just us displaying who we are as a as a people. So. Yeah, recognition is a, is a big part of it. No, I really appreciate your honesty and, and hearing you speak like that. And Ricky, just as we are about to close up, I'd love to ask you three final questions and I always finish up asking my guests these questions. In your entire AFL career for both the Adelaide Crows and the Sydney Swans, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? Yeah, sure. All right. So... I suppose best players I ever played with, I got to live my dream. Growing up, like I said, uh, as, a, as a Swans fan, Paul Kelly, 
got to play football alongside Paul Kelly, train with him, just how he went about his business. He and Darren Jarman. I got to play with Darren Jarman as well. Plugger, another one. So I've been very lucky. Those guys are, are legends of the game of football. So greatest opponents. I, I think the second time we played Brisbane at Footy Park, I had to go in the middle and I played against that engine room. Simon Black, Michael Voss, Jason Ackermanis, Sean Hart, Nigel Lappin. I'd never been as buggered after a footy game than I was after that one. Amazing so, Yeah. So running in the midfield against those guys, especially Michael Voss, just an absolute machine and nothing but the yeah, utmost respect, and especially as a footballer. Great guy, but um, and we all know his football accomplishments. So that's probably my greatest opponents. And I guess the best coach I've ever had, hands down, uh, Steve Williams, my coach at the Magpies. I respect and listen to and respect everything and I, I, I preach that to, to my young kids and, you know, nephews and, and my mates' kids. Um, always listen to your coaches, you know, that every coach is different. They all have something to offer. Stevie Williams, just personally because I'm my first league football coach, learned so much from him. I literally just saw him a week ago at the Power Game. He walked up to me and said, hey, Rick, how you going? Just a great bloke. Yeah, I was a really good coach too. He gave me the opportunity you know, let me play outside of boundaries, you know, and really brought out brought out the best in, in me, the young footballer, you know, young senior footballer. So, yeah, Stevie Williams. Fantastic. Ricky O, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast tonight. I really do appreciate your time. I've technically known you for about 10 years now, so it's been great to catch yeah. up and definitely love to catch up with my dad for a few beers very soon. Absolutely, mate. I really look forward to that. Yeah, like you said, 10 years, mate. It's been a while and... Um, you know, really uh, appreciate you having me on and uh, was, was more than happy to have a chat with you and hope all goes well, mate. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review and I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.